Welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza on this live broadcast from Washington. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan and South Sudan this Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. The UN World Food Program says the people of Sudan need urgent help. At the moment, unfortunately, we don't have the funds and we don't have the access to be reaching people at the need, at the scale that is required right now. And the UN Human Rights Commission calls on South Sudanese leaders to respect the rights of their people. We've alerted the government to the fact that this is happening and that they need to put in place measures to hold those responsible accountable. That's one of the major problems in South Sudan, that there's no accountability. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. The United Nations World Food Program has sounded an alarm bell saying that over 25 million people are facing severe hunger and malnutrition due to the crisis in Sudan. This situation is not isolated as it impacts its impact reverberates across neighboring countries like South Sudan and Chad. The World Food says urgent action and increased aid are imperative to address the mounting humanitarian challenges in these countries. WFP communication officer Annabelle Simington, speaking from Rome, highlighted the hunger crisis resulting from Sudan's 10-month conflict between the National Army and the Rapid Support Forces. The situation has spillover effects into South Sudan and Chad. There needs to be a focus on what is going on right now in in Sudan, in Chad, in South Sudan. And we need to be able to get the assistance to people uh, right now in these countries as hunger and malnutrition is just going up and up by the day. According to the United Nations, more than half of Sudan's 49 million people are facing different degrees of hunger, yet aid organizations struggle to find funding and get access to those in need. At the moment, unfortunately, we don't have the funds and we don't have the access to be reaching people at the need, at the scale that is required right now. AFP reports a significant flow of displaced families crossing borders into Chad and South Sudan every week, exacerbating existing humanitarian crises in both countries and contributing to the world's largest displacement crisis. In both these countries, the rainy season is coming soon. And with that, it's going to get even harder to reach people. We need to be pre-positioning assistance right now to make sure that we can sustain a response. We're unable to do that. And on top of that, these countries, Chad, South Sudan, they're dealing with their own hunger crises. So this is really crisis building on crisis. And we just don't have the resources to respond at the scale needed. Since the onset of fighting in April in Sudan, the United Nations estimates that over 500,000 people fleeing violence in Sudan have sought refuge in South Sudanese towns of Reng and other cities. Still on UN, the United Nations Commission on Human Rights visited South Sudan last week and called on leaders to prioritize human rights for lasting peace. 
The commission sheds light on ongoing challenges, including violence against women and children, underscoring the urgency of ending political conflict and investing in diversity and human rights. VOS Nabil Biagio spoke with Yasmin Soka, the chairperson of the United Nations Commission on Human Rights, for more on her visit and the state of human rights in South Sudan. Human rights situation has deteriorated to a great extent. Um, And the reason for that is because there are many provisions in the revitalized peace agreement, which was signed both by the government and the opposition, which have not really been implemented. So when you talk about the conducive environment for prevention, um, the fact that South Sudan hasn't managed yet to unify the armed forces and hasn't managed to really deploy them. And so that creates a great deal of insecurity in the country. The second is, of course, that um, it hasn't managed in the period that it had to actually set up a permanent constitution. And yet, of course, the government of South Sudan has announced it intends to go to elections in December of this year. Now, the Commission is primarily concerned, obviously, with the implementation of Chapter 5 of the Revitalized Peace Agreement, which deals with the question of setting up transitional justice mechanisms, which are really meant to address conflict and, of course, the root causes of conflict. In your press statement, you mentioned specific violations against women and children uh, in South Sudan. What did you tell, can, can we uh, mention some of those violations and what did you tell the leaders about the need to address and prevent uh, rights violations against women and children in South Sudan? The commission actually noted that um, given the conflict at a localized or sub-national level, that more and more women and children were being affected by the violence and in fact have suffered some of the most brutal violations. I think we were also concerned that in the Jongle area, we noted that women and children had been abducted. They had been put up for sale in the market. And in fact, they had been exchanged really for to become forced wives. And in some instances, sexual slaves and male children were actually um, you know, treated as forced labor. But what, of course, made the situation worse is that in many instances, some of the women have been held, um, you know, in this position for quite long periods. And on Thursday, when the commission went up to the jungle area, we met with a number of the young women who obviously were, placed, you know, they were not... 15 at the time yet when they were abducted and they had been forced, I mean, into um, having, you know, sexual relationships with um, either one partner or many. And in that context, many of them had, in fact, given birth to children really born out of rape. Um, what made it worse, of course, is that Many of the women um, were party or present when um, their abductors actually asked for a ransom for them from their family members. 
and local officials who seem unable to handle the situation have in fact facilitated those discussions and the payment of ransom. And, you know, what, what that is doing is really incentivizing the whole question of ransoms. Um, furthermore, um, you know, obviously some of them were not able to take their children with them when they escaped. And so there's a real challenge for them in actually establishing their whereabouts and actually having them returned. Commissioner yes. spoke to local government you, officials who... When you returned to Juba, you raised uh, these issues with the uh, with cabinet uh, ministers in Juba, with the president, vice president. Uh, what did you uh, tell them and what did you hear from them? We, you know, in, in our meetings with government, we were quite clear that... Um, you know, in terms of our report, which is going to be published and presented to the Human Rights Council in March, this is clearly one of the issues that we're going to pick up on. Um, and of course, the government, you know, um, firstly denied that sexual violence is such a big problem in South Sudan, and secondly indicated that they are not involved in the violence that is taking place at local level. And, you know, the Commission has also pointed out that when you look at the local violence, clearly it is also connected to political elites in Juba. Um, and they are, you know, when you look at the kind of weapons that are being used in the violence, then, um, you know, that goes beyond what used to be like, you know, cattle herding, um, which is quite a practice, or what the cultural practices of abductions, these have really risen. And um, with the question of ransoms, they've become, um, they've increased substantially. Um, you know, and I mean, we've alerted the government to the fact that this is happening and that they need to put in place measures to hold those responsible accountable. And okay. that's one of the major problems in South Sudan, that there's no accountability. That's yes, mean Soka, chairperson of the United Nations Commission on Human Rights. She, she spoke with Nabil Biejo from South Africa earlier today. Packaging is one of the biggest drivers of the world's plastic pollution problem. That's according to United Nations, with more than... A third of all plastic produced used for packaging. A Kenyan company is making toxic chemical-free compostable food packaging products from agricultural waste. Juma Majanga reports from Tika, Nairobi. At an industrial area on the outskirts of Tika town in central Kenya, Anita Shah is supervising the manufacture of biodegradable food packaging containers. She says she was frustrated by the amount of packaging plastic she saw whenever she went shopping in supermarkets. In 2011, the development economist left her two-decade-long international career and returned home to set up Greenstein Products, a company that manufactures toxic chemical-free compostable packaging products from agricultural waste. She says she wants to protect the environment and fight climate change. Essentially, we want to do is eliminate plastic from the food system where possible so that the question of 
production of plastics and the fossil fuels used in the production of plastics and the CO2 emissions that result from the manufacturing process of plastic and the burning of it and disposal in landfill is eliminated. The company currently uses sugarcane waste, coal, bagas as raw material but says other plant byproducts can be used as well. The bagas is piped into slurry which is then pressed into desired shapes before being trimmed and sprayed with a waterproofing bio-based solvent and dried. The result is a range of biodegradable packaging containers that David Mwangi, a machine operator at Greenstem Products, say are good alternatives to plastic. Even in my home right now I don't like plastic because when you follow up with the plastic, what do you get after? After disposing, disposing this plastic to the environment, it's not good. Yeah. But what we are making now, even if we just throw it to the, to the farm, it will lot after some months. According to the United Nations, the world produces roughly 430 million tons of plastic every year. But less than 9% of this is recycled. African countries are particularly vulnerable to the negative effects of plastic pollution because the recycling sector on the continent is just starting out. Experts say innovators like Greenstep can play a key role going forward. Akshay Shah is the board chair of the Kenya Extended Producer Responsibility Organization with over three decades experience in the packaging industry. Innovation and technology-led innovation is really, I would say, the main thing to unlock uh, how the 21st century will disrupt the 20th century businesses and end up with a much cleaner planet and even more jobs as well. Greenstem says it currently produces 100,000 pieces of packaging products per month and is installing new machinery that will see the numbers rise to 2.4 million pieces per month. Greenstem products are slightly more expensive than plastic alternatives but half the cost of imported versions. Shah says. Really we're about... Uh, planet, people and profit, so self-sufficiency but ultimately our goal is to conserve conserve the planet. Packaging makes up approximately 36% of all plastic produced in the world making it a big driver of plastic pollution according to the UN Environment Agency. Entrepreneurs like Shah hope their innovations can at least be part of the solution. Yoma Majanga VOA News, Tika, Kenya. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Coming up, most people living in developed economy in developing economy think that developed economies can offer a lifetime careers. Stay tuned for how immigrants are struggling in America. That story is coming up after this break. Hello, listener of South Sudan in Focus. We have an exciting new segment dubbed Words of Wisdom. We want to hear your thoughtful proverbs that echo through your community. This is another chance for you to share wisdom from your roots. 
All you need to do is record a proverb in a language of your choice, tell us its English translation and what it means. Keep it brief, authentic and represent your community. Your recorded proverb shall be sampled on South Sudan in Focus every Wednesday. Send your recording via our WhatsApp number, plus one, two zero two, six three zero, eight zero one one. That is plus one, two zero two, six three zero, eight zero one one. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Liberian refugee for Bulha Gekola shares his remarks his remarkable journey from escaping the civil war in Monrovia to selling on the streets of Sierra Leone for survival and the challenges he faced as an immigrant in the United States. Lisa Vora reports that despite everything he finds stability, success and gratitude in his new home. Back home in Liberia, soccer was the one thing that brought everyone together. What's up, man? It was about May 1990. Hate, At that point, the, the rebels haven't arrived in Monrovia yet. It was in the outskirts of Monrovia. Uh, we were fortunate to be one of the, the, the few families that could afford escaping in at, at that point. So we went to, went to Sierra Leone. Uh, we arrived in Freetown, and we live uh, in a hotel. Yo. What's up, Joseph? What's up, man? For the first three months or so, we live a similar life like we did back in Liberia, where we had made in a hotel with us, we had food, and everything seems to be fine. With the understanding that um, once the rubber get to Monrovia, everything will subside, and pretty soon we'll return back home because it was our first civil war and we didn't quite understand the impact or the magnitude of a civil war. My family ran out of money and we had to relocate. So at that point, I was 11 years old. So we had a fend for ourselves. So one thing that um, my mother did was have a cell in the streets of Sierra Leone. <laughs> As with any human being, your first thinking is, I need to get something to eat. How do I get something to eat? At this point, I have to sell to get something to eat. So you don't think that uh, just a few months, months ago, I was, you know, I had everything and I could afford everything. At this point, you're thinking that I have to sell to eat. So uh, you, you essentially disregard the past and continue to move forward. Because at that point, you just put yourself within survival mode. When I first came to the United States, this is in the 90s, and these kids weren't used to anything that wasn't purely American attire. So we got made fun of a lot for what we wore, what, you know, how we spoke. And then even worse, because um, when we cook in our house, we cook with a lot of spices. So as you can imagine, if you live in a small apartment with a lot of people, your clothes will always smell like the food and smell like spices. Hi, how's soccer? Hi. I'm married uh, with two kids, live in a suburb of Virginia. Did the team win? Did the team win? Yeah, we won 3 0. And uh, what yeah. advice I would have for them, uh, I think it goes beyond them, right? Um, what advice I would have from, for any young person um, is, is work hard. Can have <laughs> integrity <laughs> and build good relationships. You, you need to have those three things as your anchor in this life. You want the, the whole thing? Yeah. The United States has made a problem. It's the one of the country or the country in the world. You can work very, very hard, regardless of your situation, right? And you, you dedicate yourself and you are honest, you do well. 
Female leaders and activists from Chad, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, Gabon and Guinea say they want to be involved in the highest decision-making circles of their countries military governments. The women who met in Chad's capital, Jamena, under the theme African Women in Transition Governments say women bear the brand of violence from military takeovers but are underrepresented at decision circles. Moki Edwin Kinzika reports from Cameroon. The women gathered in Jamena say they want to be an integral part of the transitional governments in their countries Chad, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, Gabon, and Guinea. The leaders and activists say the military leaders in their countries should know that full participation in politics for women is fundamental in a democratic transition and vital in achieving sustainable development and peace. Amina Priscilla Longo is Chad's Minister of Women and Child Protection. She spoke at this week's Jamena conference and on Charles State TV on Africa Women in Political Transitions, which began on Monday and ends on Wednesday. She says military-imposed political transitions are increasing in Africa with leaders hardly involving women in high decision-making circles. Longo says women should be active players in governments of transition because women constitute more than 53% of the population of countries where there are transitional governments and suffer most of the injustices, violence, political and economic hardships in countries where the military seizes power. The women say few of them have ministerial positions in transitional governments. No woman serves as president of a transitional council and none of the military governments have appointed a woman as prime minister. Some of the women noted only Gabon has a female defense minister, Brigadier General Brigitte Okonowa. The women say although military takeovers are not democratic, they should be involved in decision-making during efforts to restore civilian governments. Chad's transitional president, General Muhammad Idris Debi Idnu, took part in the meeting. He says the women's call for greater representation in transitional political debates and decision-making is a reminder that women's political participation is a requirement for gender equality and genuine democracy. He says he is assuring the African continent that after the N'Djamena conference, militaries that lead transitional governments in Chad, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, Gabon and Guinea will involve more women in decision-making to reinforce political governance founded on equality and equity. He says the women meeting in Chad has reminded military leaders that efforts should be stepped up toward female emancipation and gender equity as enshrined in international conventions. Debbie says he and his peers in the West African states, led by military rulers, 
are preparing democratic elections. He also says the absence of women from positions now should not discourage them from being candidates and taking part in elections that will end transitional rule. The women say they plan to make their participation in transitional governance a subject of discussion as the world prepares to observe International Women's Day on March 8th. Moki Edwin Kinzaka, VOA News, Yawundi, Cameroon. With Turkey-U.S. relations rapprochement accelerating, the future of Turkish purchased Russian S-400 missiles is in question after Washington's offer to allow Ankara to buy its advanced F-35 military jet if it removes the Russian weapons. But as Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul, the S-400 missiles remain a potent symbol of deepening Turkish-Russia ties. Turkey's purchase of the United States' advanced F-35 military jet could be back on the agenda. Ankara was kicked out of the jet program after it purchased Russian S-400 anti-aircraft missiles which Washington said compromised the F-35's stealth technology. But during a visit to Istanbul last month, acting U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Victoria Nuland offered to revive the jet sale if the Russian missiles were removed to a third country. Turkish Foreign Minister Hakan Fidan indicated Ankara could be open to a deal. Erna Ishchi is a Russian affairs expert at Istanbul's Kardahas University. After the purchase of the anti-aircraft missiles, which was unprecedented, and I think that some people in Erdogan's cabinet also admit that this was a big mistake, Turkey's purchase of the S-400s, was very costly and diverse. Turkey's purchase of the S-400 missiles, observers say, is a powerful symbol of its deepening ties with Russia and deteriorating relations with Washington. The deal was signed during a time of distrust as Ankara accused Washington of involvement in the 2016 failed coup attempt, a charge denied by the US. Turkey's ties with the US have been improving with Ankara's ratification of Sweden's NATO membership and Washington reciprocating by allowing the sale of F-16 jets to Turkey. But the F-16 is inferior to the F-35, which neighbour and rival Greece is set to purchase as part of its military modernisation. Sergio Zell teaches international relations at Istanbul's Kardahas University. When you read Turkey's hawks, everybody is afraid that the air force balance over the Aegean is not tilting or is going to be tilting in favour of Greece. Analysts, however, say that whether Ankara takes up Washington's offer of F-35 jets in exchange for removing the Russian-made missiles, possibly to a Turkish ally like Azerbaijan or Qatar or even Libya, depends on the progress of improving relations with the United States. Hussein Baja is the head of the Foreign Policy Institute, a research organisation in Ankara. Turkey can easily renounce on S-400. It is a political decision. It is not military uh, necessity. It is a political decision and uh, uh, political compromise. So far, S-400 helped Turkey to increase the level of negotiations with NATO and the United States of America. 
Ankara's purchase of Russian missiles was widely seen as a diplomatic triumph for Moscow, dividing Turkey from its NATO allies. The missile's removal, analysts say, would be a similarly significant victory for Washington. Dorian Jones, VOA News, Istanbul. That's all we prepared for you this Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. <clears throat> we now leave you with Eddie Kenzo and the song Blessed. <laughs> Listening to Eddie Kenzo and the song Blessed. I'm your host, John Tanza, on this live broadcast from Studio 14 here in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Kwame Ofori, and engineer, Cornelius, we wish you a lovely evening. Remember to join us tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America.